Thanks again to everyone supporting us on the podcast through Patreon. Patreon allows our listeners an opportunity to contribute to the podcast and allow us to bring you great guests and content each week. Thank you to all of our patrons and a special shout out to Jonathan Lambert for being our largest donor. You too can become a patron by visiting patreon.com slash mentors, the number four M-I-L. This podcast is sponsored by Uncana, trusted natural solutions. Uncana is a leading voice of advocacy for CBD in the veteran LEO and federal communities. Veteran owned and operated, the Uncana team is actively fighting for DOD access to CBD with political pressure, community support, and a simple message. Hashtag OpNatural. Uncana is vertically integrated with industry leaders from seed to sell, supplying premium small batch products to America's best. Use code mentors the number four MIL at checkout at uncana.com to receive your amazing discount. Read the Mentors for Military disclaimer at mentorsformilitary.com slash disclaimer. Mentors for Military Podcast. All right. Well, first off, welcome to the Mentors for Military show. Here you are, you know, all big. You just came off the Jocko Willink show. So this is small time, small fry compared to him for sure. But we appreciate you coming on the show nonetheless, because I think this show is going to be what I would term maybe as a mega episode. I don't know. I'm, I would kind of see how this thing pans <laughs> out, but I say mega episode because typically, John, our shows range from about 40 minutes to about an hour. Um, so, you know, we're just going to go with this thing, see where it takes us, but I, there's a lot of great information and stuff I want to dive into from your back history. So again, welcome to the Mentors for Military podcast. Well, thank you, sir. It's an honor to be here and my time is your time. Uh, you've gotten me all excited about your program. I'm always glad to talk to anybody who's interested in our history from our little dirty war. Yeah, so I want to go into just that, because if we take you all the way back to when you first came into uh, to the military, where were you at? How did it all begin? And why was it that you decided to go into uh, the Army for a branch and then later into Special Forces? Well, it all started with flunking out of college. It took me two years to flunk out of college. I flunked. My dad sent me a letter. I was working up in Yosemite. National Forest, National Park, and he said, you did it, you flunked out, they're going to come draft you, and <laughs> and uh, went down the list a couple months later when I got home, and I listed for Airborne on Assigned, got in, went through basic, uh, AIT, jump school, went to Special Forces training, and then after that, we had a little RTT training, radio teletype, before we went to Nam, and we landed in Vietnam. Did our in-country training at the end of it. Said, "Hey, there's a special project. Anybody want to volunteer?" Johnny McIntyre said, "Why?" He said, "Sorry, we can't talk. If you're interested, sign up." We did. Welcome to Mac Vsog. So I want to get into Mac Vsog, but before that, I, I want to get back just a little bit because we're talking about an 18-month time frame here. Basically, from the time that you went in, I think it was December. So the following December, you had completed your basic training, your airborne qualification, your Q course, and about six months after all of that, which was the following December, six months after that, and say May or June of that year, that following year, you went to Vietnam. I mean, this was this was a 
really fast-paced training. We are. The training uh, at Bragg was quick, and then we had 12 weeks of radio teletype, which was uh, uh, from January through March of 68. We had a month leave before we went to Vietnam. We landed in Vietnam at the end of April 68. You know, in your case, um, I understand, too, that Am I correct in stating you were an E2 when you went to Vietnam? Yes, we. I uh, proudly got demoted from private first class to private E deuce. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you got to share this story because it's pretty fascinating when you went in there to see the uh, the old man. Uh, so you go in oh, there yeah. to see the CEO, and what what happens at this point? Well, the old man was only maybe twenty three or twenty four. He's a new butter bar, new lieutenant, and we were down there temporary duty. And they hated us. We hated them. And so by a period of time, he called me in. I had eight Article 15s there, everything from being late for formation, being disrespectful. So he said, pick one. So I picked one, crumpled it up, and threw it at him. He said, now you got nine. <laughs> and <laughs> so <laughs> uh, me and Johnny McIntyre, we, we had our PSE stripes torn off ignominiously. And then uh, – we went to Vietnam as uh, private E Deuce. So I came <laughs> in the uh, the military in 1979. Went off to OSIT, you know, one station unit training, basic AIT combo for combat arms. Uh, the following year in 1980, and I still remember the term, especially from my father, because I was a Navy brat of zipper stripes. So this happened frequently in you know the 60s and 70s. You know where guys would one day be one rank, they'd you know they'd take them off. Sometimes they'd Velcro the damn things on, or they called them zipper stripes because you might as well go ahead and zipper them on because you're never going to keep them for very long. <laughs> <laughs> that, that sounds perfect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course, I don't even know if Velcro was around. I guess Velcro was around at that time frame. So. Uh, I, I want to get back into Vietnam and a lot of people, you know, I got to thinking about this. Most of the people today that are fighting in this war, John, believe it or not, are of the age where their great grandparents, maybe grandparents, but possibly even great grandparents are the individuals who fought in the Vietnam War. That, that sounded crazy to me. I know that sounds crazy to me, but you're I hate to say it, but you're accurate. Yeah, I, I just found that so fascinating. So I thought, well, you know, maybe we ought to talk about not just the Vietnam War, but we're also going to get into your special unit. Uh, but the Vietnam War was um, something that, you know, our country entered into uh, the, before us in Vietnam. The, the French had tried to, to stop some of the stuff that was going on. By the time we got engaged, things were pretty heavy. You had the Ho Chi Minh Trail, you know, which you cover in a lot of your books that was just uh, starting to come together. Our, I think our government was trying to deny a lot of the stuff that was going on. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong on anything I'm saying so far. Well, we did support the French. We were there with them, supplying them both in air and, I guess, some technical support. And uh, when they got defeated, there was a period of time when the people in North Vietnam and had a choice. They could go south, and the people who lived in the south could go north. Well, thousands of people left North Vietnam to go to South Vietnam, and of course, including that with Viet Cong, but there were people who generally didn't want to be with the communists. So fast forward to when I land in Vietnam, um, I have Vietnamese on my teams. They knew their government was corrupt. They preferred a corrupt government in South Vietnam to a communist government where they take away all your rights and can kill you and just throw you away in jail forever or whatever. 
And, you know, when they talk, like Ken Burns and the folks, when they talk about Ho Chi Minh and the boys up north, they don't talk very much about their uh, the way they treated their own people, killed them off the way Mao did, Stalin, any good communist. That's the way they worked. Mm-hmm. But people forget that side of it. And our guys knew it, and that's why they were fighting communism, and that's why we were there. And, um, you know, just lucky to be here to talk about it today. Yeah, no lie. I mean, this was a very different war and very different type of communist fighting, like you had said, because what they'd like to do is really create that fear environment, right? Absolutely. Yes, sir. Fear, intimidation, do it our way or we'll kill you. No, and and so in the introduction of your book, Sog Chronicles, Volume 1, you start off with, for our readers unfamiliar with the Vietnam War, there was a deadly eight-year secret war fought outside the conventional war. It was fought by Green Berets and their indigenous troops in Cambodia, Laos, and North Vietnam from 1964 to 72, run under the aegis of the Military Assistance Command Vietnam Studies and Observations Group, or simply SOG. Sog Chronicles Volume 1 is a non-fiction, nitty-gritty story about the men who fought in the secret war hidden from Congress, the nation, fellow soldiers in Vietnam, and their families. If a Sog Green Beret died in Laos or received the Medal of Honor stemming from mortal combat in Southeast Asia, their families and the nation would be told they died in South Vietnam or received America's highest award for valor in South Vietnam, not in the actual countries where the combat occurred. Sog men went across the fence in sterile fatigues with no dog tags, no form of identification, no photos of loved ones, or any detailed information that would indicate they were American. Why? Because it was a secret war. Our government needed plausible deniability if any soldiers were killed or captured by enemy communist forces. So this was kind of the world that you guys, you volunteered, as you said, for. This was that secret, you know, type of mission or setting that that sergeant came out and asked for the volunteers. Correct. Yes, sir. So, I mean, when was it that you guys realized that basically this was almost your typical suicide type missions that you guys were going to be running? Did you guys figure that out as soon as you guys realized where they were bringing you into and you had to start signing these documents that said, hey, listen, you can't tell anybody? At what point was it, it was like, oh, crap, man, what did I just volunteer for? Well, we weren't quite that quick, but um, <laughs> <laughs> when we had gone through training group, there were guys, there were men. Green Berets, who told us they'd been to Vietnam two or three times, several of them, and they all had Purple Hearts. And they all said, you go to Vietnam, do a traditional aid camp, do special projects, do not volunteer for them. Get the first tour under your belt. If you like being an SF, then think about the projects, but the casualties are bad. So the movie was out, the book had been out for a few years, the song had been out. So McIntyre and I and a few of our buddies uh, we went through the in-country training, which was, I forget, two, three weeks. And at the end, out comes the guy. We got like that scenario. So, hey, we're like, we're, we're with the program. We've been watching all the World War II movies. This is an opportunity. We're in special John forces. Wayne, Green Beret. Yeah. This yeah. Is, yeah. Yeah. This is it. This is the cat's meow. This is like, what would the Duke do? We know what the Duke would do. The Duke <laughs> would go. So we're gone. We raised our hands. And... uh the next day, we had the briefing up in uh, Da Nang, and uh, you know we had signed a document before we got briefed. And the document said, you will not talk about this. You cannot talk about it. If you do, you will be prosecuted federally. So I kind of got your attention. And the other sidebar on that, uh, which was really 
for uh, all of us that were communicators that did Morse code, did the radio stuff, we had been trained by uh, Sergeant First Class Villanova, Paul Villanova, who had had three tours of duty previous to us. And he had trained us, like in my case, we got recycled on Morse code. He was the sergeant who stayed on nights, weekends, worked with us, got us up to speed, and got us graduated. When we're at this briefing, we learned that in January of 68, he was the first KIA that year in SOG. Mm. And that, you, you, you know, um, there's a word, mind bleep. Yeah. But that is, the, that is the word that's appropriate here because that hit us hard, particularly all of us comic. We're going like, wait a minute, Villa Rosa, three tours, first mission in this secret war, and he's dead? Yeah. Well, we're not going home. We're not going to be home for Christmas. We're going to get carried home in a casket. Yeah. And that, that's where it really hit home. Yeah, I can only imagine. I mean, it, again, you think about these guys who've gone on before you that's got all this experience that – you know, you think they're they're bulletproof. You know, these guys are the best trained. Nothing's going to happen. Um, yeah. 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 We're green as grass, green berets. And all these senior special forces men, all of whom have one or two more tours of duty, all were like saying, you know, really think, don't think about this. And then here's our hero, a man who, who helped us get through the course, dead, killed in action. And then, of course, with my experience, when we landed at Fubai, um, we got off the helicopter, and the King Bee, the helicopter, South Vietnamese helicopter, takes uh, ST Idaho into Laos, and they've disappeared. They've been missing in action since May 22nd, 23rd, 1968. And that's how I got a job in recon. The whole damn team was wiped out. Mm. Wow. So, I mean, when you're you're looking at... When is it that you can talk about that? You guys, you couldn't even bring this up until 20 years later, right? Correct. We couldn't tell our parents, you know, loved ones or anything like that. It's just like, and they're serious. I mean, I'll tell you how serious they were, Bob. My dad, when Across the Fence came out, my first book, after that book came out, my dad read it. And he came up to me and said, you know, I can never figure out why that tall guy came by and picked up our trash. I said, what do you mean? He says, when you're in Vietnam, says this tall African-American man came by and he picked up our trash. It got to be a regular thing. I saw him do it more than once. And uh, a couple years later, when dad went to work at the post office where the FBI, uh, ATF, uh, all were centered, they had their offices at the post office in Trenton, New Jersey. He said, I saw that guy. And that's right. He was working with the FBI, and they checked our trash to see if you were writing anything inappropriate. Oh, my God. This is like right out of a movie. You oh, know? yeah. <laughs> you know, where, where you would see this going on in wiretaps, even when the phone was actually on the receiver, so that you could listen in and find out what's oh, going yeah. on, the conversations. That was fun. <laughs> <laughs> you that's know, different. That's a, that's a good guy's story. Well, that's true. That's true. <laughs> Well, you guys, I think one of the things you just highlighted here, though, too, is that among the secrets destroyed was documentation that SOG suffered the highest casualty rate of the war, exceeding 100% casualties. Yes, sir. We had men like like Bob Howard, who was put in for 11 Purple Hearts. He, He canceled three, but still received eight. 
And there are people, others that had multiple Purple Hearts and others who, like in my case, we, we were, a Purple Heart was a stigma for anybody in SF. It's kind of like, oh, you're so stupid. You couldn't get out of the way. You got wounded. You got shot. <laughs> Great. And so there's, there was two other times where I was put in for the Purple Heart where I went to the guy in the SWAT and said, do me a favor, just kind of like put that in the round yeah. grass container. I got one Purple Heart. That's enough. I'm, I'm embarrassed by it. So, yeah. Uh, what's it like you wore it around in your fatigues at, or any time or anything? So it it's just one no, of those no. things. Though, the word, <laughs> you guys were a small enough group, though, that people would recognize that. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. He, he got him a purple heart this last time. Yeah. yeah. Mrs. Myers, little boy Johnny is really dumb. He got three purple hearts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Oh, my God. Indeed. So what was it that was different about or were all the SOG teams in primarily recon? We also we had the recon teams, and they had exploitation uh, forces, which were called hatchet force. And the hatchet force could run a mission across the fence. Uh, could be anything from a, a squad to a platoon uh, to a company size operation, which is Operation Tailwind and Saw Chronicles, where you had B Company from Contum at CCC September 11th. Uh, 1970, it launched into Laos to take the pressure off of a CIA uh, operation that was under great siege by the NVA. And so that, in that case, you had 16 Green Berets, 120 in Didge. And after that mission, there were 32 Purple Hearts handed out to the 16 to 16 Green Berets on the mission. Oh, my gosh. So yes, what, sir. What kind of was the missions of uh, recon? Is this kind of where you were going in to do not just observation, but you guys would go in for down pilots, SF guys that have been pinned down or retrieving bodies? You know, that was kind of the, the main. Um, they had different categories. Yeah. The, yes. As you said, general recon, sometimes a point recon, like there would be the observation planes would see something new for a bridge crossing or a pipeline or a new telephone line that somehow would they would give a sighting. They would, we want to find out what that is or caches, supply dumps, find out where they are, pinpoint it, and then bring the air force in to destroy it. Or if we could carry enough C4 to blow them up. In addition to POW snatches, that was always a priority. If we had an opportunity to snatch a POW, then everything else went away because there's nothing more valuable than uh, a living intel source, which is a living soldier. We get him, take him back, and then the professional interrogators would get, would talk to him to learn what they knew. And then the bright light was the most dangerous of all missions because that would be to go in for a team that had lost people or a team that was under siege, try to relieve them, help them get out, or down pilots or body recoveries. We just you carry body bags and you would only carry weapons, firepower, one canteen of water, no food, because you knew they were waiting for you. And most often it would be a very violent firefight. Like for example, when Idaho disappeared, two days later, ST Oregon went on. Everybody on the team was wounded. This one South Vietnamese was killed and the enemy used American hand grenades against ST Oregon, which was bad news because we assumed they got it from our team that got wiped out. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah, yes, I, sir. I, uh, 
I would come across the one story that you and I were talking about a couple of days ago when we got on the phone and you were saying about the uh, the battle the battle where the NVA general later on got a chance to talk to the SOG, the radio man. <laughs> and and yes, uh, so I thought we might dive into that a little bit because I think it really highlights what you guys you know were under in many of your battles and stuff. So one of the most amazing stories you talk about is uh, to emerge from the eight-year secret war during the Vietnam War it took place on October 5th, 1968, west of the Ashu Valley. One of the deadliest targets run by recon teams based at the top secret compound in Fubai, FOB-1, run under the aegis of the Military Assistance Command Vietnam Studies and Observations Group, or simply SOG. So kind of give us an idea of what was going on, because as I understand it, the communist North Vietnamese, the NBA, had inflicted severe losses on SOG recon teams prior leading up to this. And um, it was in this valley that the key location where enemy troops and supplies were funneled down the notorious Ho Chi Minh Trail, what everybody hears about that studies Vietnam into South Vietnam to take their war into the major cities, um, to you know bring their tanks and their uh, supplies and everything down through this. Kind of give us an idea of October 5th, 1968. Well, yes, and it's, uh, it's a, a tragic story that was compounded by the leadership at uh, Fubai before the mission. Because previously, we had a team leader, Tim Shoft, who was the team leader, who was removed from the team because he was only in the E5. The S3 brass wanted to put in a guy who was a, a staff sergeant or a sergeant first class. And he had more rank, but no experience. So Tim Shoft went out to another assignment. They made the team leader, uh, the 1-0 team leader. And I won't even mention his name because it's really sad because – when they went into the target on October 5th, he was on a first helicopter. The second helicopter had Lynn Black on it, who had a combat tour with the 173rd Airborne and 66 in Vietnam. And he was experienced. He was a cool head, a good, a good soldier. Um, so when that target came up, when they got on the ground, Lynn saw an NVA flag. He told the, the team leader hey, we've got this, if there's a flag here, there's at least a battalion. Mm -hmm. That means at least 3,000 NVA. we got a nine-man recon team here. And the team leader goes, I'm not going to have any gook run me out of a target. And then he turned around, ordered the team to go down a trail. We never walked on trails. Yeah, I mean, that's you're, you're like in open. I mean, you never want to go out into the open like that. So the sad point is when he walked down that trail, um, he walked into an L-shaped ambush, and the NVA heard the helicopters come in. There was a colonel who directed 50 men into an L-shaped ambush. And they were like on a high rise that was to the right and a little bit in front of the team as they walked down this trail. They lit, so this new one zero, no experience but more rank, walked the team into an ambush. He was killed instantly. More sadly, the point man was killed at instantly, who was, who was a veteran, a good South Vietnamese soldier. And then a third was, uh, was wounded, and he eventually died. During that firefight, imagine 50 NVA soldiers on a bluff to your right and to your front, off the right. And they're all firing at the recon team. The recon team fires back. That was the beginning of an all-day mission, back and forth, where the NVA tried to overrun the team. In the early hour and two hours of that mission, 
uh, Lynn Black took over the team because the other American panicked. He began praying. He never fired one shot in anger. Oh, my God. And so here's Lynn Black. Fortunately, he had Cowboy, who was a South Vietnamese team member, and his name was uh, Doan. And then we had another guy, Doti Quang, who was just fearless. These both came from North Vietnam. They hated the communists, and they fought them with great courage. That day, they stacked up, literally stacked up the bodies and built a bulwark of dead bodies. So when the next wave of NVA hit them, they would kill more and stack them up. They eventually ran out of ammo. They would take ammo and weapons from the dead soldiers. And during the course of this day, the Air Force came in with A-1 Sky Raiders, uh, Marine Corps, Army gunships, and it was, went back and forth all day. And finally at the end, a uh, and they lost in the process, three helicopters and a couple of aircraft were um, damaged severely, but were able to get back to base. And at the end of the day, the team got out. So Lynn Black got out, and the guy who was praying a lot got out, Doti Kwong, Cowboy, and two other team members got out, came back. Now, Lynn, during the course of that, they had to move the team. Lynn had been knocked unconscious, um, and the blast was so severe that it destroyed his car 15 and literally knocked him out. And Cowboy woke him up, got him back on his feet, and they had enemy weapons that they used for the rest of the day. So fast forward 20, 20 some years later, America went back to find a body of the American team leader. The North Vietnamese government worked with them and cooperated, but they couldn't find a body. Um, a few days later, Lynn Black, who was working at Boeing at the time, got a phone call. The guy identified himself as General, I don't know his name. We'll just say for here, General 2. So General 2 calls us, hi. Lynn, were you there that day? He goes, yes. He said, well, I'm the guy who ambushed your team. And they talked. They exchanged notes for a while, very amicable. And near the end, um, Lynn said, hey, uh, when we came in, we saw that flag. How many men were there? We assumed it was 3,000. So this is from the NVA general who ambushed the team. He said, no, it was 10,000 men. And Lynn goes, well, you know, you really hurt our team. You killed three of our men. We only went home with six. And he goes, well, you and the air assets inflicted 90% casualties on our division that day. That means 9,000 out of 10,000 men were either killed, wounded, or left missing in action from the orders from the Air Force, Army, Marine Corps, and, of course, the team on the ground because Lynn and those guys had stacked up the bodies. So to talk just a little bit further, and the general goes, oh, by the way, who had the radio? That was me. He goes, the general goes, so you're the guy that stood up. Everybody else on the team went down. They were either killed or they went down to the ground and fired at my soldiers. He goes, yes. He goes, you shot me three times. And the worst thing about it was, after you shot me three times, I laid on the ground watching you kill more of my men, and I could do nothing about it. So later, when Lynn's talking to me, I interviewed him for the book. He goes, yeah, it's funny, you know, I shot, I remember shooting some guys, see him spin around, to shoot him again. <laughs> and, uh, but that's one of the uh, stories that has to be right up with the top 10 most amazing SOG stories. Because oh my God, yeah. Lynn got the word right from the guy who ambushed his team that day. So, I mean, uh, you know, I read this story and 
the fact that these guys, I mean, over and over, hitting barrage after barrage of NBA coming at them. And, I mean, they were throwing everything they could at these guys. And at one point, you know, this team, um, one of one of the uh, the South Vietnamese soldiers, along with Black, decided that they were taking mortar fire from three different positions. So they'd go after these, and, you know, they kind of drew up. It was almost like a playbook in the sand. Sound, you know, when I read this, I thought of, like, football game. You know, the the old, uh, you know, let's let's do it in the sand, draw up a play right now. Oh, yeah. You know, sandlot football. And and so, uh, you know, it was the South Vietnamese says, I'm going to take out position one. You take out three. We'll meet in the middle at two. Well, the South Vietnamese guys got, uh, I think he got taken down, right? He was basically pinned down, couldn't take out the guys into one. Black took out three. I think he came upon two. And then what is, was a story that he came over to one and finally helped the South Vietnamese, uh, Vietnamese guy get one as well, the first position? Right. Yeah. Yes. Crazy. Yeah. I mean, Black was like, I mean, rating up there. John Wayne had nothing on Black, you know? No. I mean, and he, and by that point, Lynn had been knocked unconscious. His pants were literally blown off, and they were torn so badly. And here he's using enemy weapons by that point because his was destroyed. Yeah, and and even all the way until these uh, these helicopters, you know, came and pick him up. I mean, the heroics of these guys that were coming in during that time frame. I mean, that one bird coming in and trying to uh, to basically made his own clearing so that he could hover low and no one would even know yeah. that he was there and taking shots like crazy by the whole crew while while this team is trying to make its way out of the jungle. Black gets approached by three NVA who basically tell him, you know, you're kind of screwed. Yeah, surrender. Chuhoy. That's, yeah. that's the term for surrender. Well, actually, there's two NVA. As he's approaching the helicopter, they came out from underneath the helicopter between Lynn and and the crane, the the uh, the metal cable that came down with a seat on it, mm-hmm. and the hoist, and so those two come out. They're young, and they say Chu Hoy, and Lin didn't stop. He went right up to him. He grabbed both of their AK-47s, which were hot from firing so many rounds at the helicopter. He burned his hands, but knocked one guy out. Took the gun with the other one and hit the other guy and knocked him on the ground. I presume they knocked him out, too, because then he got on the hoist and the Air Force um, pararescue man was able to lift him up. And Lynn was the last man out of that target. Then they left. And as the helicopter was lifting, B-40 rockets, which are anti-personnel rockets, which you see today as the RPG, Mm -hmm. the rifle propelled grenades. And the helicopter was getting thrust forward, I mean, upward. Because at the bottom, those B-40s were pounding on the bottom of that helicopter as it lifted off out of that area where it was hovering. And um, it was severely damaged, but it was able to get enough away far enough from the uh, area of operation, crash landed, and then uh, another helicopter came and took some of the members where Lynn Black and the, uh, the cowardly special forces man who was praying all that time, they got into another uh, – the gunships, the Cobra gunships at that time, had special doors on the side that could carry men, personnel, and they'd strap them in. Right. And that was the way they got their, their ride was back to Da Nang from there. I mean, just when you think that you're out of uh, everything and you finally clear, uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, the helicopter that you're on, I mean, it, it couldn't get any worse. You realize at that point, this helicopter is not going to make it much further. I think it was the pilot that basically told them, you know, Hey, we're good to go. We're going home. But then that 
that wasn't what happened. You know, a few minutes, yeah, a few minutes later, <laughs> yeah. from taking all these these rounds and everything. I mean, and when you read, you know, these descriptions and stuff, the amount of rounds that helicopter took, it was a wonder that it was still flying even at that at point. All. Where, yeah, at all. And oh, so, yeah. I mean, to think, oh God, we're finally out of here. You know, we're good to go. And then that helicopter crash. You had to think at that point, okay, you know, I only have so many lives here. I think I just burned up about four of them. You know, because. <laughs> I mean, this is what a crazy story that even in a movie, people would go to it and go, there's no way that is so Hollywood, you know, no, Mm -hmm. didn't happen. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, the and Lynn and the survivors that day, when they got back to Da Nang, I mean, we'd heard about the Jolly Green Giants and other Jolly Greens. This is what their code name was. They were HH3 Sikorsky helicopters Mm -hmm. and um, they were heavily armored. Uh, had it been an uh, ordinary helicopter, those B-40s would have knocked, literally knocked a regular helicopter out of the sky. But because those uh, HH-3s were heavily armored, particularly on the underside, uh, they were able to exfiltrate from the target area. But when they got back to Da Nang, they saw the model of the pararescue that others may live. Yeah. And that day... They lost several Air Force men, including one pararescue uh, and a co-pilot that died when that one Jolly Green crashed, not to mention the King Bee that went down and the other aircraft that was shot up really bad, and there were some casualties there. And um, so that was a, just a day of incredible courage. The All the Air Force, the gunship pilots all put their lives on the line time and time again, and they're in a valley. So you had smoke from the ordnance. The, everything about that mission was uh, just incre- incredible and just amazing that anybody even got out of there alive. Yeah, even today, I mean, a lot of the guys, you know, they hear that motto of PJs or pararescue men from the Air Force mm-hmm. so that others may live. And, I mean, that's, that's a creed that goes all the way back deep and has deep roots like, deep roots like you're describing here. Oh, yeah. Uh, and even today, these guys, I mean, the type of training that they end up going through, it's a two-year pipeline typically. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of um, training that they go through in different types of environments. Um, and, and their whole mission here is really to try to help others and save others. And it's, uh, I mean, this is a great story about that. But like you said, there were so many helicopters and aircraft that were lost in this valley trying to take this one team out. Did yeah. you guys, and, and the story goes that, you, that no one ever did go back there because of um, it was so heavily fortified. But to this day, has anybody ever been able to go back and find out if there was any remains there whatsoever there other than that black trip? Or is that the only trip when black went? Lynn, Lynn was consulting with the government on that. He worked on maps and they had somebody, uh, I forget what the agency was then, but today it's the DPAA, the um, Defense POWMIA Accountability Accounting Agency. And there's other renditions of it over the last 40 years, 45 years that have been, their sole mission is to bring home uh, and look for and uh, American remains in Southeast Asia. But he worked with somebody, a caseworker. He did not go back on that recovery mission because he had a full-time job at Boeing mm. at the time. But uh, he helped them with the maps, pinpointed it, but they were not able to locate the remains of the team leader. Wow. That's, that's so no, unfortunate. 
Yeah, here's a lead for you. So the booking you've got in your hand, you know, talking about helicopters leaving an LZ under duress, the end of the story for Operation Tailwind is another SOG classic. Oh, definitely. In that, yeah, because there, uh, on that mission, on the last, very last day, after they'd been on the ground for or three days, they were entering the fourth day. The day previous, they attempted to medevac the wounded. And the helicopter came in, and it got uh, heavily damaged, so it was not able to extract anybody. The following day, they came back to try again, and the first helicopter came in, and it left. And then the Covey, the, the uh, FAC, uh, said, you know, we got so many enemy soldiers coming. We got bad weather coming. This mission's over. So they brought in a second helicopter where there's more gunfire on a second helicopter and they extracted uh, the second part of that hatchet force. Then the third helicopter comes in. There, the team leader, the medic, Mike Rose, and the remaining uh, Vietnamese. As the helicopter came down, they were under a heavy attack and the, there was a South Vietnamese team member standing right next to the American team leader who was killed during that firefight, they all get on a helicopter. It's a CH-53 Seastein, which is bigger than the HH-3. It could carry more people. It did have some armor plating on it. And so as this helicopter is taking off, it got hammered. RPGs, uh, small arms fire. And the one of the door gunners had a round that went through his neck oh. and cut an artery. Mike Rose, who was the med- the only Green Beret medic who had treated more than 70, 75 men during that four-day mission, jumped up, saved this guy's life. And the guy was going into shock. And Mike told him, he said, if you were going to be dead, you would have died 10 seconds ago. But you're not going to die. Settle down. He, he put the appropriate bandages on, stopped the bleeding kept this young Marine alive. And as the helicopter was ascending, they're in Laos, which is extremely mountainous area. So the helicopter pilot pulls out as he's climbing to go over the first mountain ridge. One engine goes out. This at that time, the CH 53s only had two engines. Today they had three. They climb over the second ridge as they're going over the second ridge. The next, the last engine goes out. So now the pilot goes, my engines are out. I'm going to have to auto-rotate. Does anybody see a landing zone anywhere in Laos that I could auto-rotate to from the top of this mountain? Because he's up at around 5,000, 6,000 feet. Nobody said a word. Usually there's chatter back and forth. Back, somebody will say, hey, you know, to your right, to your left, look here. He found nothing. He was as he was descending down into this valley. He saw a little, looked like a stream and maybe a beach, and he was going to land in the water. But he knew that some of the wounded were unconscious, so he was afraid that he didn't know how deep the water was. So if he landed in the water, it might uh, make the men susceptible, those who were wounded, to drowning. So he saw the beach. And he says, okay, I'm going to try to land on this beach. And the helicopter went in an auto-rotation, which is when the engines are out, 
the force of the helicopter descending, the uh, pilots are trained to use their propellers if they're working. In this case, they were. So the, the weight and the wind passing through them allowed the helicopter to descend as opposed to just falling out of the sky and everybody dying. He came in and crash landed on the beach, which had an angle. The crash was so severe that the team leader, Gene, uh, Captain then Captain Gene McCarley's teeth were crushed, and he was ejected from the helicopter, as was Mike Rose and several other team members. But they all lived, and they were able to get distracted. And uh, one of my f- favorite SOG stories from that was a at that area there was sand and and nobody knew that there was sand in Laos let alone water and when Gene McCarley regained his consciousness he looked out now here's a guy that had been in the Laotian jungle for four days three nights and four days and he looks up here's this water and it looks like a beach with sand and standing in the water is one of his sergeants standing there with a car 15 with a big shit-eating grin on his face in the middle of Laos. So they survived that. Mike Rose, um, for that day, for the courage uh, and for saving so many lives, received the Medal of Honor from President Trump October 23rd, 2017, at the White House, off of that mission. It took a little while, Yeah, but he got it. Yeah, no lie. And I mean, that's the kind of the sad part. Is there, <laughs> there must be hundreds of these types of stories. And this is one of the things that stood out to me was when I read this piece uh, that you just described. And I think, you know, to kind of get the full uh, context of it, I'll read a little bit of it. It says the 23,628-pound helicopter violently, violently landed on the angled slope hitting the slope surface and instantly slamming to the right, into the ground, ejecting several of the Green Berets and their Montagnard tribesmen, team members, while the six rotors shattered upon impact with the ground. B Company commanding officer Captain Gene McCarley was violently slammed into the roof of the helicopter before being ejected from it. Quote, I remember hitting the roof of the helicopter. I remember hitting it so hard I felt my teeth crumbled into sand, McCarley said 45 years later. God, I mean... That just sounds painful in in and of itself. You know what I mean? I mean, oh yeah, and it took him over two years of corrective surgery to get his teeth repaired. Yeah, <laughs> wrote and then, and then oh my god, and then Rose said, "When you pancake in like we did on a helicopter, and when it hits violently upside down, everybody had their bell rung. Trust me, we're all hurting. Gene was bleeding from the mouth, but he could move. I remember getting thrown out, and the blades were upside down. I was blurry eyed." Still not getting all of my senses back, and for a moment I thought the chopper was coming toward me. McCarley said, Mike was standing beside me. I was wiping the blood of my crushed teeth from my mouth. Then Mike said, we've got people in there. We have to get them out. I could smell the aviation fuel. There was blood everywhere. There was hydraulic fluids. The helicopter was broken by the severity of the crash, and it was smoking. How it didn't explode, I'll never know. How that young Marine pilot landed, albeit a hard landing, I'll never know. Then McCarley, McCarley had one of those unique, inexplicable, inexplicable moments in wartime. In the middle of all the rubble, the smoke, the day's confusion at the crash site, he looked to his right and observed First Sergeant Morris <laughs> Adair standing in water with a smile on his face, holding his car 15. Oh, I mean, yeah. talk about a moment that would come right out of Hollywood once again. I mean, again, you, could, you couldn't make that kind of story up. That's just no. uh, too crazy. Um, but 
again, this was one of those missions, as I understand it, that later on uh, was not reported necessarily the way it should have been out to the public. As to uh, oh God, no. Tell yeah, us a little bit about that. Years, Twenty-eight years later, in June of ninety-eight, um, what we refer to as the Communist News Network mm-hmm. and uh, CNN Time Magazine. Yeah. Yes, sir. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, they um, did a story and they sensationalized and and falsified the entire mission. To and they reported on CNN. They were at the time, CNN was trying to challenge uh, CBS in 60 Minutes with their news magazine format. And so the story that they presented to the public was that Operation Tailwind, which this mission was codenamed Operation Tailwind, was a mission where it was designed to go in for the Green Berets to find American dissidents, men who had left Vietnam from, running from the war, to go in and to kill them. And that was the mission, as well as uh, wounding and killing uh, innocent uh, women and children. And then on top of that, hitting them with sarin gas, which was an illegal gas. And uh, so that was the story. And Mm. they presented that on the open air. And it was refuted instantly. And uh, there was um, many different levels. But the key point was that. At the time of that mission, uh, that type of gas was in three locations, Okinawa, the United States, and Alaska, I believe, but nowhere in Southeast Asia. And the story was refuted. It was pulled back. And eventually, Ted Turner sent a letter of apology to Gene McCarley. And there was court actions, and um, it was never fully reported as well as it should have been. But again... Because of the petty court actions, a lot of papers automatically rallied around Time Magazine and CNN. Oh, yeah. And uh, so that's why we, as part of the book, I wanted to have the follow-up on that just to uh, talk about it. There was some settlements, but all the settlements were sealed. We don't know what they were, don't want to know what they were. But it was just a shameful, another shameful example of of uh, the CNN reporting something erroneously completely erroneously made up out of facts you think about today and how that is you know with the internet and social media and the craze i mean information goes out it goes out by via twitter some other mess you know method via social media and once it's out there it's harder to, to take it back or the story ends up taking a life of its own and then it may be half truth because they wanted to put the information out there as quickly as possible and even if they say that it uh, was incorrect or whatever, few people actually hear that part of it. Yep. Two weeks ago, I got a phone call from a young man who worked on some kind of a knucklehead news network. He called it a news something, but obviously it was online. And he goes, hi. He says, um, I saw that you had done a story on this Operation Tailwind. He says, I got the real story, and I wanted to do more follow-up on that. I said, well, what's the real story? And he, he went line by line with what CNN and Time Magazine printed oh. 31 years ago, thinking that, um, I mean, 21 years ago, in 1998, that that was the accurate story. And we got into it a little bit, and then I just said, here's the book, here's the accurate story, 
there's, there's, and here's the court case. Go look for yourself. But by the way, if you print that story, there's going to be some men coming knocking on your door that are going to be real unhappy because it's not accurate. That's part of the challenge, right? Is that people aren't oh, yeah, doing their horrible. due diligence. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think I want to get, uh, spend a little bit of time talking about with, you know, I think it's, uh, for every green beret, um, what is it? There's eight people back behind him that's basically helping support uh, what you guys are doing. Something of that Ye- nature. Something of that nature. I yeah. mean, like during the war, the common uh, thought amongst the troops was that for every combat soldier, there's 10 support troops. Gotcha. So when at the peak of the war, we had 543,000 Americans in South Vietnam. Nine out of 10 of those were supply um doing support transport things like that whereas the the uh the others were combat units there was a guy that you uh you called out within the book that you recognized by the name of ben baker and he, here was a guy <laughs> that uh yeah. you know is back in the rear basically supplying you guys with just about anything you wanted you know so i thought it was really cool that you took the time to highlight him and some of the work that he did obviously he was recognized and uh i think he became an honorary uh green beret uh but it was really cool that you called that out and some of the work that he did because you think about it you know if you guys needed the regular supplies or whatever, you'd have to go through the channels, all the bureaucracy and everything else. But having somebody like this on your side was really nice. Yeah, everything from jungle boots and the early, very early parts of the war. I mean, I'm talking about the early parts, early 60s, way before. I'm still in high school, way before we're involved, at least my level. Um, they needed indigenous rations. Well, he put together a package that not only would have food that would be um, appreciated by the indigenous people in Southeast Asia, but he also spiked the uh, rations with vitamins and things that would be helpful to their personal health. Way ahead of so his time. That, way ahead of his time. And then everything we had experimental weapons that he was sent to us to try them out, and even and even the you know fatigues. Initially, they had tiger stripes. They had different sizes, different thickness of materials. And by 68, majority of the tiger stripes were either too thick for us to wear because when it got wet in the jungle, it would take too long to dry. You'd get jungle rot or they were too thin and they would tear on vines. So we had to, we just wore traditional fatigues. But again, Ben was the man behind the scenes on all that. And he helped get the car 15s directed to SOG. So we had the best weapon the U.S. had in its arsenal at the time. Man, jungle boots. You brought up memories there. I absolutely love my jungle boots. <laughs> you know, I, that was that was my boot of choice if I had one. Obviously, if you had to stand in a particular formation of which they wanted all the boots to match, you had to go back with the regular old standard boot. But at every opportunity I had, I wore jungle boots. And actually, the first pair that I wore was passed down from my father from Vietnam and uh, they were still a, a fairly good pair of boots that he had. Um, I don't know if he got them on his last leg or whatever the case was, you know, they were at the very ends because they were still in pretty good shape, but that's exactly the pair of boots that I wore. And man, those, those things were just awesome. I don't know how you felt about them. And that col- I will say this, that damn shank inside them gave me frostbite, uh, a minor case of frostbite because it got so damn cold one time in Germany. I was a dumbass wearing them out in the snow. 
Oh, see, you wore socks, but you're, we never wore socks. As <laughs> oh, as did you? No lie. Is that right? Oh, yeah. That's, that's my next question was, so, Bob, did you wear socks? Yes. Well, in Germany, that's not a choice. That's mandatory. And, yes, I could see where it could get cold. But in our case, the reason why the plate was in there was because we'd had men that suffered severe injuries from punchy pits. Oh, yeah. They would have the NVA. Most, this would be mostly in-country. But uh, for the traditional A-teams, they would be on the tra- pass and trails where the, the Viet Cong would go out, and they would get bamboo and sharpen it like um, knives. And then they would dip the ends in animal feces so that – and they would put them in a hole, have, this, have the spikes facing up. So when somebody stepped into that hole, the, the punji stick would go through the boot, penetrate an ordinary boot, and then – penetrate the foot, and then instantly start a severe infection. Mm. And uh, Ben worked on getting those jungle boots so it had the steel plates so that if you went into a punji pit, at least you wouldn't have it go through to sole your boot. Oh, so he was the one that came up with that. He worked on it. Now, whether he's a sole developer, I don't know. Oh, but man. I know that early on he had talked about it, and then later they had a, a, a jungle boot that – had instead of the foot instead of the traditional jungle boots it had a size of a small foot so that it looked like small feet walking on a trail get out as far as the sole yeah on the sole of the boot he had he had definitely been involved in that the idea being oh maybe you guys want to get on a trail and if you do you're wearing these jungle boots if an nva comes along they'll see little footprints they know it's not an american that and, uh, is awesome. Oh, my oh, yeah. God. Yeah, way ahead of his time. This guy was really thinking out of the box. And um, so I was curious, Is what was your typical load? What was it? You know, I know you are a radio man, so you had a PRC on your back most of the time. Yeah, but, always. Yeah. I, every mission I carried it and had so had the PRC 25 radio, one battery for it. Mm. And then um, that was not light either. The, correct. I forget what the exact. I should go back and look that up. But. The um, after the first couple of missions, I was carried 600 plus rounds for the car 15. We had a sawed off M79. Always carried 12 to 13 rounds for it. Then we had uh, 10 or 11 grenades, hand grenades for combat, and then smoke grenades, um, and then uh, a rain jacket, a very small plastic uh, thin rain jacket that would cover your back with a hood. And it would cut off at the waist, that's all. And then a sweater for nights, because sometimes it would get really chilly in the jungle at night. Mm-hmm. And uh, a knife, uh, morphine, serrettes, and of course the compass and other things you needed in the jungle. Yeah. Was the uh, sweater... Well, the- and, we, and, and we always carried a gas mask. Sorry, we, yep. we carried a gas mask because Intel had told us how the NVA had used gas on teams in Laos. Yeah, that just added to the weight. Of course, that was a necessity, of course. But I mean, oh, yeah, yeah, geez, that just added. I was going to ask you about the uh, the magazines and everything. As I understand it, these were 20 round magazines. And I think you had mentioned about, you know, I remember back in the day, you couldn't fit 20 rounds within there because of the spring. You can only and if you got a, ba- a brand new magazine and stuff, that thing was the worst trying to to shove enough rounds inside of it. Right. So we always put traditionally 18 rounds in. Because the spring, you you didn't want to have it too compacted, fearing that it would cause a jam. Because with the CAR-15, it could fire 20 rounds in a second and a half. 
Hmm. And with that kind of firepower, you had to have maximum efficiency from the magazine, pushing the rounds up so that the uh, housing would trigger, get the round into the chamber, fire it, and then reject all within a second and a half. So that's approximately, if my math is right, around 33 clips that you had. Because yeah, if you're right. carrying 60, uh, yeah, 600 rounds, I mean, mm-hmm. holy cow, that's a, that's a, how, how did you keep, uh, is this back in the day, I remember we used to cut a little bit of the 100 mile an hour tape and spin it around <laughs> the uh, uh, the um, actual mag so that it wouldn't bang another one. Uh, what did you, what did you guys end up doing to, so they didn't, you know, end up banging up against each other? In the early days, we had a uh, World War II uh, BAR harness. And the harness worked out perfect. They had ammo pouches on them, mm-hmm. and it had uh, shoulder patches, this, which had uh, padding underneath them. And you could get five Car 15 magazines in each pouch. So each pouch would be packed. We'd have four magazines face down with the tape up and then one on top. And then you close the lid on the pouch. And then we, uh, then in between it, we would put an additional... Uh, leather canteen holder and pack six or s- six more magazines in that and then have a few more magazine in the backpack in the uh, in the rucksack what about sea rats uh how many of you guys did you get to take one two of those or uh i would only take one can of fruit either a peach fruit. peach or um apricots and then the rest we had for our rations uh, the Americans used the the uh, dehydrated rations, mm-hmm. and uh, where we had uh, beef stew, chicken stew, chicken and rice, um, chili chili con carne, and it would be all dehydrated. And it would be in a plastic pouch, and they would give you some cigarettes, spoons, salt and pepper. And what we do was you would take it out, and the team took a break to eat. We would rotate who would eat. And then we put water in it, wrap it up, and put the next to your body for an hour or so. And the body heat would warm up the rations to your body heat level, and then you could eat your rations from there. Oh my God! And and then we had Vietnamese uh, indigenous rations, which would be rice, and they had variations of fish, shrimp, beef, and uh, some Americans preferred to, to use those. I was curious because, you know, during the Cold War period, we'd just take uh, – the, the you became a sea rat connoisseur uh, back in the day. <laughs> you know, so if you had a little bit of Tabasco sauce, you could maybe strike it up a little bit. But typically, you'd take uh, the can, crack it open or something, put it in the box and catch it on fire. So that way, you know, it would heat the food. And, of course, right. you wouldn't do that in a combat situation, uh, clearly. Right. Uh, but I knew a lot of guys – it's funny you mentioned the fruit. Of course, you know, that makes you poop and everything. And, and I remember we had an LT – kept taking the peanut butter and the chocolate away from people out of their sea rats. They'd be like, Hey man, I'll take your peanut butter. And we kept telling them, sir, you keep, you keep eating that crap, man. We're going to have to medevac you out of here. You're going to get plugged up. Well, he didn't trust us. So it went on for about two weeks, three weeks. Next thing I know, it's about 4 a.m. And I hear a chop, you know, of course you can hear a 60 coming in all oh, over. Yeah. So we hear the wop wop and the breaking of the wind and uh, walk outside and start looking around like, what the hell is going on? And sure as shit, here's this LT on a stretcher being carried out in Medivac heli- a helicopter. And when I, asked the, <laughs> when I asked one of the guys, I'm like, Where, where's he going? He's like, oh, man, he's all plugged up. Guy was like doubled over in pain and the whole bit. 
So, uh, yeah, <laughs> stay away from, you know, back in the day, you'd stay away from that peanut butter, the chocolate. But you you could do some really interesting things with the sea rats, and that's why I was curious as to um, well, you could make yeah. multiple meals out of one if you were really good yeah. about it. Yeah, back at base, we did that, and our, our indigenous troops would take advantage of that, did some very creative things. And, of course, the other problem with sea rats in the jungle, they're loud. And oh, we yeah. open one. So the fruit thing was like you only open it when you really were secure where you were. You had to be careful to didn't make too much noise with the metal can opener. <laughs> yeah, well, you think about that, too, that uh, no one thought of a meal. Uh, well, you guys obviously did with your, you know, um, your dried and everything. But, I mean, the, the sea rats just didn't make much sense because, they're like you said, they're in a can. So, you, yeah. yeah, you're having to use, uh, what was that, P38 uh, can opener. To try yeah, to there you go. Yeah. to to try to open <laughs> that thing up, which could be noisy because it's metal on metal now, and yeah, it yeah, it didn't make any sense. Not to mention, you start leaving it laying around, uh, and if you don't dispose of it properly by burying it or whatever, then it's going to be real easy for people to figure out, you know, that you have apricots or peaches or something of that nature. Some of that juice gets around; they're going to know right away. Some Americans around in this area, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> What was uh, what was some of the things you know since then that um, you know the SOG information is starting to flow out? People are really starting to hear about a lot more. Obviously, with folks like yourself coming forward and sharing their stories. But what else would you like to be able to share with people about your specific you know SOG and the recon and, and that era of uh, of the Vietnam War and the men that fought within that? Well, you know, it's um, on a very personal level. Um, to this day, I judge anybody I meet against the men I served with in SOG. And uh, it's a very tough comparison. It's unfair to people from today because of the men I served with and are so highly respected. And within Special Forces, particularly, young Green Berets like us could go in and we could talk to older, more experienced Berets. They would talk to, to us. There's none of this rank hierarchy. The most important thing was the mission to do the best you could, learn how to strive to go forward, and regardless of what happens. I mean, in 68, we had several teams wiped out before we ever got on the ground, including my team, Spike Team Idaho. And you had to put that away mentally to go forward with the mission and to learn from anybody else's mistakes or what happened so that when you're on the ground, you would have a better um, advantage against the enemy or try to learn any tactic or strategy that would help make life better or increase your survivability and layoffs. Because when you, we ran the targets, once you're on the ground, it's not like you pick up the phone and dial O for operator, say, operator, guy, can I have some phantom jets and sky raiders? <laughs> no, you're no. on a prick 25 and, and, and there are days when we would go three or four hours in enemy contact without any support. And there was no conventional forces, no Marine Corps um, that could come. No artillery. We're out of range for that kind of support. So it was just us, air assets, which, of course, we had the best in the world. But there was still that time. So today, it's that I look back on it with, with great pride. And the men that I served with, sadly, are dying off because of Agent Orange. And um, it's just like several of the men that have died in the last couple of years 
they were killed in Vietnam. They just didn't realize it, and they've died recently, yeah. way before their time, because of Agent Orange, which is sad. And there's another legacy to that. Today, we still have 1,587 Americans missing in action in Southeast Asia from the Vietnam War. That includes Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, both north and south. And there's a few up in China, airmen that got shot down that went across the border. And you know, our biggest concern is in Southeast Asia, the soil is very acidic, the most acidic in the world. And we have a League of Families. It's the National League of POWMIA Families, which has fought our government, tried to work with the government to have attention on this mission and trying to bring home as many of the remains, identify, locate, and return and to bring full counting as many as possible from the Vietnam War. And that's still going on. Laos alone gave sense of the Secret War. We have 50 Green Berets today that are still missing in action only on Laos, plus 120 airmen who died supporting us on the ground. And they're still listed as missing in action. And like, from a personal, very personal, I wish I was somebody like... Um, Ross Perot or Darrow Iser, somebody with buku bucks to be able to go back to find, locate, identify, and bring home those Americans because it's just very painful at a very painful, at a personal level, such as ST Idaho. They disappeared May of 68. That's 51 couple months later. They're still out there and their families never heard nor knew the truth about where they died. So, for example, if I'm killed in Vietnam, uh, in Laos, my parents would have been told, your son died in South Vietnam in combat. Well, no, no, I died in Laos. Is some of that information now coming forward where these families are hearing the truth about where their loved one was actually killed? It's now, yes, 50 years later, thanks to some of the books. And then the, we have a um, an association, a special operations association, and uh, one of the committees that the uh, association had that's been up and running for about seven or eight years, we reach out to any siblings of any of our KIAs or MIAs, oh, any awesome. of our men who were killed in action. And uh, if they can't afford it, we bring them to the reunion. So this year, we had the family of uh, Buddha Payne. Buddha was a jovial African-American soul who came into our operation, trained up. He ran a couple of missions, and then in December, he was a uh, he was attached to a team as a strap hanger, and they got into heavy enemy contact, and they couldn't get the boot out, and they were able to finally get his remains. Uh, I think it was 25, 30 years after after he disappeared, but his family never knew much about. Buddha and where he actually served, who he served with, and his uh, son, and I think he has two daughters, are going to be coming to our reunion this month, October, in Vegas, uh, from the 24th, 21st to the 24th, and they'll be one of the families there for the first time, where they'll meet men like me, who played poker with his dad, tell him what a great guy he was. Wow. Things that he may have never heard. 
that's that's amazing that you guys are doing that and reaching out to them otherwise like you said they'd have to find out by you know researching themselves they may not you know think to do that because they were told something that's the only thing that they know so if you guys weren't reaching out they may get kind of lost in the whole thing but i think also recently i watched some kind of show and it was about um children who are from pow mia that have gotten together and they're starting to help their secondary post-traumatic stress from this of dealing with you know losing a, a parent in vietnam and um they have formed kind of formed kind of a bond where they're sharing stories of what they remember as kids of their parents or something of that nature to kind of help them through this whole thing I, i'm not sure if this family that you just described is the same one but it's very similar to the one of the stories of a, a family that came forward that was sharing why they became a part of that organization um, to help one another. And I think it even carries on into today's war uh, of how they're doing that. Of course, we have Gold Star families all over that many people know about. And it's, it kind of is related to that, but in a different way. It's an extension. Wow. that's I, I hadn't heard of that. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, what you guys are doing are, is amazing as well. And I tend to wonder too you hear some of these rumors out there and i'd love to get your thoughts on it in terms of um do we believe that there was any maybe not from the sog community but then again maybe so i'd just love to get your thoughts on do you think there was any of these missions where perhaps there could have been guys who escaped who were missing in action that actually tried to survive and may have survived through the vietnam war i'd like to think so but um, I can't imagine. I mean, um, the NVA, when they came into contact with us, they knew that we were a different level of fighter. And in majority cases, they would just kill us because they just felt that they knew they could not brainwash our people into coming around to their way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I, so... Uh, does that answer your question? Yeah, that point? yeah, it does. I mean, I think that I had heard people who came back that obviously were older than me that I had used to that I used to talk to, and some of them were wondering that very same thing. They were saying, you know, I, sometimes I wonder if there were some guys that went MIA and they're basically, you know, hiding out and hell may have even stayed there and tried to to blend in um, after the war or something of that nature, but. You know, you're kind of holding on to something that was more maybe of a hope and a dream, but the reality is probably more of what you're describing, that it was it was something that if they were found, there was less likelihood that they survived. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and in our case, there's so many different stories. If you read the book on Common Valor, um, the author, Steve Moore, wrapped that book around award citations he researched over a period of time with his uncle, um, Wilson George Hunt, who ran recon out of Contum CCC for a year. And um, when you read those citations and his stories, uh, any of the people that were alive, I'm sure were summarily executed. I don't think any any of the SOG guys would have ever taken uh, POWs because – even some of the A-camps where men would be knocked unconscious, they they did nothing but try to escape. And uh, there's only a few cases, like Nick Rowe, he was captured for five years before he finally was able to escape and just became one of our 
instant special forces legends, you know. This makes it much more challenging then because, I mean, even if you have the grid coordinates where, let's say, SD Idaho was, if they were taken captive, dragged back to a different location, whatever, now you've really got to expand your perimeter. You've got to then think about, okay, were they taken back maybe even hundreds of miles back into the rear? And it makes it harder to pinpoint without stories, without written documents that could be found within the government or something that would help pinpoint perhaps the, the location of where those remains might be. Yeah. And, and uh, here's, your, here's your further uh, element that compound that problem. The jungle grows. So over 50 years, if, if I were to go back to a target, say we're Echo 4, if I'm on top of that little hill that we were fighting on for four hours before we got extracted, there would be at least six inches, maybe a foot or more of new vegetation that's grown on top of that soil. And so today, the major concern is that within the five, next five to ten years, the acidic soil in Southeast Asia will literally destroy any evidence, including bones and teeth of our men that are in the ground that are there. And you're right. The way you explain that, it makes it more difficult because um, local villagers would perhaps take, the, take anything from the body, the gear that they wanted. Sometimes they would move them. Some NVA troops took the time to bury our soldiers. Others, maybe not. Or some would just get them and throw them off a cliff. So who knows where? So I doubt, I like to think that we could bring home every 1,587. But in reality, just not going to happen. Yeah. And our government, the budget for DPA this year is $130 million. And there's some other issues with DPA. It's not won't go into here, but um, we still have a lot of work to be done. And the men and the women who are in the field today, those people are amazing. They make you proud. They are so dedicated to the mission. They spend hours, weeks, and time of their lives on that mission. Those are, they're, they're, we admire them. They're our heroes because they go back and work hard to try to bring back a fine identifying and return are missing. Uh, but in the bureaucracies, that's where some of our issues and priorities are. But mm -hmm. the people in the field of Southeast Asia, we salute them every day, pray for their well-being, and hope that they continue to see there. Yeah, I don't know if you ever saw the show, the new television show, This Is Us. But uh, recently, they um, the show has always been carried on where their father had fought in Vietnam. and But there was uh, a necklace that one of his sons... Um, he was given from his father later in life, and so he had heard a story from somebody who survived Vietnam with him, and he wanted to go back to Vietnam to understand more about that, that necklace and that piece and everything. And I think for me, it started highlighting much of what you're talking about. You go back to those villages, and so the people that may have been in their 30s now are in their 80s. If they were in their 40s and found potentially the remains of an American, you know, they, they are now in their 90s, or they're, they're no longer there. So hopefully that story was passed on to a next generation. Hopefully you can find that individual or those family members that are still surviving there that may have not have moved or, you know, they, it's not like here in America where they, they move often. They pretty much, those families have remained in those places for hundreds of years. So if you had the capability to 
communicate, to get those stories, to find out that information. Um, I guess what I'm just describing here is the complexity that goes behind this that takes not just a lot of money. It takes a hell of a lot of cooperation. It takes um, records and information that may have to come from uh, a top secret or confidential on the Vietnam side uh, that could be open, um, which means that's the bureaucracy that's going to come into play. Both countries playing a role, one not trying to be bigger than the other, because then you're talking about two different entities here. Um, so many things come into play. But what you're, what we have here going against is that you're describing is a ticking clock. You've got about five years. Well, we do. But also, the, the, the one little bit of good news, and our government hasn't caught up to this yet, but uh, thanks to the 800-pound gorilla to the north, we have unprecedented cooperation from Vietnam government, Laos, and even Cambodia on these efforts now. In fact, they've given approval for more missions than at this time our government's prepared to put into the field. Hmm. And this cooperation has really increased immensely. And just as a little sidebar to what you're saying in terms of other elements, for ever since the war and after the war, there have been people out there who are imposters, criminals, bandits, uh, who pretend to have information, they'll sell information, and the people that are actually on the ground, we have DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, They've done incredible work behind the scenes. They're seldom given the accolades that they are due, but they've earned. But their men speak the language. They know the culture. They're in the countries for long tours of duty, and they really care about the mission. And they're, in my mind, the best American asset we have there on the ground in Southeast Asia. And they're every day they're trying, but they have to sort through the phonies the liars, the people that are just trying to get money. And there's even a couple of clowns that come back and say there's been this guy who's resurfaced three times in the last 10 years saying, I'm John Robertson. I was the Green Beret who disappeared in Laos in 1968 when my helicopter got shot down. Oh, I can't speak English anymore. I just speak Vietnamese because I lived with the Vietnamese so long. Oh, my God. And he, put, he, he tried to foist himself off. Well, there are people that believe the story. And there's young reporters out there who are so ignorant of the war, who've never taken the time to really research it, nor do they call the National League of POW MIA families to get an honest answer. They just go forward with these stupid stories and they make it uh, as though it has credibility or credence, and it doesn't. That's so sad. But, you know, that kind of uh, stolen valor happens all over the place. But when it comes to that, that's that's like taking it to a whole new level, you know, because in— oh, yeah. Cause, yeah, because you now family members are thinking, oh my God, my my grandfather, you know, or my father might still be alive. There's something really, and and then it ends up leading down uh, a a bad road here. And I mean, if that happens two or three times uh, before too long, you just don't have a lot of faith that anything will ever come of it. What what can people do as far as that's listening to this? What kind of action would you ask of people? that they can take to help this timeline in order for this to move forward and, and we find perhaps more remains? Well, the the first thing is um, the National League of POW MIA families who support them in any way, and they always have letter-writing campaigns to local representatives and senators saying, please continue the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency and their efforts to move forward. 
and to keep the emphasis on the Vietnam War missing in action. And um, that is the most important because they have the accurate information. Um, there's one lady who's the uh, CEO, chairman of the board, Ann Mills Griffith. Her family's been involved in this mission for over 50 years. And her brother uh, was shot down as a Navy pilot in uh, September of 66. And they finally recovered his remains um, mm. last year. And he was formally uh, buried at uh, Arlington in June this year. And uh, But that, that league works with DPAA. And uh, they try to get as much information as they can. And the league always needs support, both uh, from volunteers, donations, because they have activities, meetings. They have annual meetings where they bring families together and they bring the government in to have updates to talk about what the issues are today. It's sad because there's so many other things that come into play, you know, where people see something like the Vietnam War that's so far removed now. Like I said, you're now talking about grandparents <laughs> or great-grandparents that they don't understand maybe even what you're describing here. Yeah, yeah, that was back then. Hey, five years. We're probably never going to find them. So it's just, you know, they, they're not going to get engaged. Not to mention you don't see as many POWMIA flags flying around nowadays. You don't see people. Correct. Yeah, it's it's pretty much dwindled away. Everybody's pretty much decided that, you know, I'm living in my bubble. I don't want to get involved. Um, that's way over there. This is this is an opportunity, I think, really, and a call to action for all of us to come forward in some way to say, hey, listen, I want to play some role here. You know, even if it's uh, lending a few dollars or something of that case that can then help support this mission of what these guys are doing or certainly putting pressure on maybe some of these guys that are getting elected or potential elections or uh, the current government system to say, hey, listen, what else can be done right now? Can we have a further dialogue about what can be done in order to move this into a faster mode? Time is time is of the essence here. Right. And the league is always ready and willing to uh, have people that are serious about helping and uh, to to continue to put pressure on the government to move forward in that effort. One of our recon men ran a target. It was a bright light, and it was in Cambodia. And there was an A, I mean, an F-4 uh, Phantom jet that went down. Um, his recon team went in, and the jet, when it crashed, it hit a hilltop, a second hilltop, and it crashed at a third hilltop. Well, long story short, the NVA came out when the recon team got to the second hill. They had to get extracted in order to survive. They could not get to the downed aircraft. 25 years later, the team leader, who was a successful radiologist, spent $70,000 of his own money to go back to look for that downed aircraft. He was so personally touched by that mission. He went back to Cambodia, hired people to go into the jungle. They got to the site, and when they got there, armed uniform bandits came up to them and threatened them and forced them to leave. Oh. Uh, two years ago, Jim Shorten went back uh, with DPAA, went to the site, and DPA was focusing on either the first or the second hill. He told them the jet crashed on the third hill. So just having him there, he was able to specifically get them to the correct site. And then additionally, um, on the second hill, when the jet had crashed, it had gone through uh, 
a small village which nobody knew about because you couldn't see it from the air. And they had killed over 100 soldiers when it crashed. And Jim was able to point that out. And the North Vietnamese government was happy because they found bodies that they didn't know about. Mm. So they were able to recover more of their killed in action at that site. So this is one man, Jim Shorten. He's one of our legends. He was uh, in the Navy. He ran missions with SOG for a year. And then he became a pararescue man and the reserves for several years thereafter. So that's one of our great little heroes that quietly went about the mission there. So they didn't encounter, I guess, any of the uh, the gang members or anything that the that he previously did? Right. Cause on this one here, they had government cooperation. Oh. DPAA was there. And uh, on every DPAA mission, they always take along a uh, Green Beret medic and there's some others. They always have security with them. I'm mm-hmm. not sure what how far or how many people, but they do have security to protect those people. As I said, there really are heroes. Those young people out there today on DPA in, in South, they're just great. They're so dedicated to the mission. They work from day to night, and they really go at it, go at it hard. I'm curious, do you ever get asked to go back to Fort Bragg um, to um, <laughs> the JFK school to as a gray beard uh, to, to listen in on some <laughs> of the changes? Uh, no, not quite that way. Okay. Um, they, you know, over the, I live on the left coast yeah. and Bragg is on the, is on the least coast. Oh. <laughs> so, uh, we have, we have a, 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 it costs a lot of money to travel and budgets are still tight, but they have, uh, Robin Sage is the final phase of training for oh, green yeah. berets when they all come together. And so they have these graduations. So someday I've had a standing invitation to go down there for, for the graduation to attend just to be there. And, you know, it really, when you meet today's young green berets, they're just amazing people. Their, their training is, is harder today than what it was when we went through. And, uh, it makes you proud to uh, see these young men who are, who are wearing a funny looking hat that keeps neither the rain nor the sun out of your eyes, but they're just amazing men. So what do you say then when you hear the discussion about how the training has changed? Don't you think, you know, guys like us, we've been around for a period of time. It's always based on the mission. There's always going to be uh, based on the needs and the demand and everything. So at that, because of that, the, the training changes all the time. Absolutely. And it has to train change. I'm sorry. And one of the things we're dealing with now is special forces is getting back into training on conventional warfare. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, with this 18-year war that we've been involved in here uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq, a lot of that has um, changed some of that. But there are today over 80 countries where there are other Green Beret teams that are working with indigenous people to help them improve their life and help them to remain free from oppression. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I think a lot of people um, forget about when they, they read or hear about the, the special forces is they think of them as more of the knuckle-dragging door kickers. But although they do that, um, there's still a lot of this in the mission that you're describing here that was the original um, the original mission and, ob- and objective and stuff for special forces. And I've heard, too, recently that the Navy SEALs are going to start getting back to their core 
which never was meant to be really the the knuckle dragging door kicking type of thing. Uh, they, they of course they all are trained in that type of uh, warfare, but it, it was a little bit different. They didn't really make that shift until the two thousands because everybody's chasing the same dollar. Absolutely, and they even got the Marine Corps to dust back ops now. Yeah, Marsoc. But don't forget, with special forces, you have the medics are the best in the world. And that training, if you're going to be a Green Beret medic, it's going to be over two years of constant training plus language. Our people are trained in language in addition. And they also take the time to learn about their area of operations. So even in our case, we went to Vietnam. We were told about customs, do this, don't do that, and how to get along with the local people. And really, special forces are armed teachers to the highest degree. Yeah. Because our preference would be to go in and train people to be able to take care of themselves, to defend themselves. And um, in the early days, when our people went to Southeast Asia, they would do something as fundamental as working with the Montagnards and say, Mr. Montagnard, when you live in a village, put your urine and your feces potties south of your village, away from the water, not above the water supply, so you infect your water. Something as fundamental as that, all the way through to training them how to how to fight, defend themselves, and how to use modern-day weapons. Yeah. I mean, and weren't you one of the original 10th group guys at no, Devons? Sir. Oh, okay, I thought no. you were. I, I spent time at Devons, but I wasn't original. Um, the originals went over, they were formed in 52, Okay. I work for one, Richard Simonian, who's 87 years old, and he's just fit as a fiddle. Uh, for an 80, He's the best, most fit 87-year-old I've ever seen. He went over with the originals, and when he went, uh, they took a ship over to Germany, took a bus, and then they marched into Bad Tolts. Oh, my God. And this was 1953, and the Cold War was heating up. And there's recently a book called Debt A was talked about that aspect of that secret war where our men were going across the fence into East Germany and elsewhere all in an effort to combat that communism, which was, as you know, how heated it was during the Cold War there in Europe. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I served with the 11th ACR. I don't know if you're familiar with them, the Armored Cavalry Regiment that uh, basically yeah guarded the border there out of Fulda. And, um, so I spent a couple years there and, and, you know, that a lot of people that were in the cold war era don't remember just, or may not have ever seen that type of thing. Some of them got shipped out, went over to Fulda, got a chance to see, you know, the fence or something of that nature. But when you really think about the oppression that those people were under, um, you know, it, it really started putting things to light and that's much later than what, you know, Vietnam and, and those types of things. I don't think society today really understands socialism communism as a matter of fact my daughters you know i've talked with them about it they have no clue it's not taught in today's school you know in florida when i was growing up we had to take american versus communism as a as a credit requirement in order to even graduate high school and sure and today it's not even discussed you know Uh, so i mean it's it's kind of sad because we're doomed to repeat history if we don't understand it well and even worse too i mean with the uh, young people coming out of college today who don't know the true history of Stalin, Mayo, Ho Chi Minh, and Fidel Castro, what they've done to their own people. And they always forget that the leaders of communism and socialism, 
They eat and live well, but the rest of the population will not. And Stalin killed millions of his own people, as did Mao. They didn't care. I mean, in our country, everybody, we try to help all people in our country. And even though it's not perfect, it's still better than anything else in the rest of the world. Yeah. And sometimes people don't understand that if they've never left these <laughs> these uh, waters, you know what I mean? If they haven't left this earth here at this uh, oh. America and they haven't experienced, you know, second, third world, they're not going to understand what you're describing there. They they always think there's something better. Um, so, I again, I think uh, hopefully people will listen to this. And, and certainly I know a lot of the military, if they haven't studied or understand a lot of Vietnam and that war in which you fought in, specifically those SOG units and those guys you serve with and yourself, I have the utmost respect for what you guys did. Um, that's it was to be in the Vietnam War, especially as an infantryman on a guy or on the ground. Uh, that was difficult in, in and of itself. But what you guys did in special forces takes it to another level, and then of course SOG takes it like that's I, I can't even measure where that's at. Well, the numbers are quick. Uh, I know we're getting, we've been on the air for a couple of minutes here, but uh, during the Vietnam War, 3.2 million Americans served in the war. That includes 500,000 sailors that were stationed uh, in their ships off, off the land, off at harbors. And out of that, 20,000 plus were Green Berets that served in Vietnam. Out of 20,000, approximately 2,000 served in SOG. Out of the 2,000, it depends on which author, but between 500 to 800 men actually ran recon across the fence into Cambodia, Laos, and North Vietnam. John, I mean, what a legend that is. I mean, that's a story that actually needs to get heard a lot more. Um, I love the fact that you came on. You took the time out to join us on the podcast because I think it's these kind of stories. I, I'm blown away by them. I hope you'll at least consider coming back on and sharing some of the other ones. I know you've got a, a bunch of different stories I'd love to dive into. So oh, I'll uh, be happy to. Oh, that, uh, and I'm, I thank you for even caring about our history. And uh, if you have a guest that cancels or gets sick, can't make it, give me a call. I'll be glad to fill in. For oh, you, you know I will. This is something I'd love <laughs> to dive into. Uh, like I told you, you know, when we talked uh, before, uh, this is uh, a period of time that I have the utmost respect. I was a child. Um, I turned 17 and 79, so you can kind of do the math from there. And, Indeed. Yeah. And so, of course, the Vietnam War, I grew up with it as a teenager, knew about it um, in early preteen and stuff as well. My father was involved in it in the Navy. Um, you know, and so we were in Japan during that time frame during the Vietnam War. So he's flying a lot of stuff out of there. Um, he was uh, on a uh, the aircraft. aircraft car. No, no, no. He was on the um, the rescue ships um, that uh, landed in the water. And I don't know why the heck I can't think of the name of those things. Um, but at any rate, uh, they would go in and save pilots and stuff that were downed in the water um, or ships or something like that that got hit. And he did a lot of missions flying in over uh, land and stuff, doing some rescue missions. And a lot of the crewmen that he served with, I actually found a lot of his old units during Vietnam and yearbooks and stuff online. And I reached out to him and was talking to him about how my father died and of cancer. And um, when I was talking to this one gentleman, he goes, well, you'd be uh, you would, shouldn't be surprised because actually probably 90 percent of the guys uh, who served along with your father died of cancer as well, typically throat cancer, lung cancer, or something of that nature. And it's uh, tied right back to Agent Orange, just like you had mentioned. 
and uh, because they flew right through it, you know, they would. Uh, oh wow! And, yeah. and it would just be a, a cloud, you know, and and they knew it at the time frame, but they didn't think much of it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody ever thought about the ultimate ramifications. Seaplanes. Jeez, I don't know why I couldn't have thought of that just a minute ago. <laughs> <laughs> but but he was a crew chief on seaplanes. There's so many stories. You talk to family members that have lost their dad uh, to these different forms of cancers, and it just makes you sick to your stomach. Yeah. And uh, nobody ever thought about this in the long term, that's for sure. Yeah, and considering, like you said early on, that you know a little bit of that war kept eating at that individual all the way through, and they had no idea that it came from you know that period of time. It's, it's really sad because you know these guys living good, long lives and stuff, and that's the thing that ends up taking them. Um, yeah. So, well, again, thank you so much, John, for coming on the show. And, uh, you know, I'll be reaching out to you again. We'll have to do a, a different episode on one of these other stories, and we'll take it down the rabbit hole. Well, I'll be happy to do it. And, again, I thank you for uh, you and your program there, for even caring about our history and for sharing it uh, with your listenership. I appreciate it. And uh, like a bad dream, I'm happy to come back. <laughs> Hopefully it will be a good dream. <laughs> We'll keep up the good work, sir. Until next time, we'll talk soon.